0: Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us.
1: What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and member FDIC.
0: What kind of a
1: show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting.
0: I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. You're
1: one of Jack Crawford's, aren't you? I am yes. May I see your credentials? Certainly. Closer, please.
0: Closer. The Silence of the Lambs turns 30 this month. At the 92 Oscars, it took home the top 5 prizes: actor, actress, director, screenplay and picture, one of only 3 films to pull that off. Do you know the other 2, Josh? Oh, wow. Uh, what makes this tough is the actor and actress
1: wins. How about, uh, I'm going to go with Driving Miss Daisy and, I don't I don't
0: know, Terms of Endearment? Sure. I actually have no clue myself. Oh, this week okay. on the show, <laughs> we're going to take a closer look at lambs with a sacred cow review.
1: Closer. I see what you did there. We'll also talk Film Spotting Madness, our seventh annual bracket style tournament. That and more ahead on Film Spotting.
0: Welcome to Film Spotting with Josh and Adam. So, Josh, walk us through your state of mind when you found out from me that your beloved Gremlins not only wasn't making the 64-film Best of the 80s Film Spotting Madness bracket, but it wasn't even a lock for the play-in round.
1: Well, as you know, Adam, I've I've abdicated any input (laughs) in Film Spotting Madness. I Uh I took my name off the committee a while ago, left that to you and Sam. So I, I really have no right To complain. If the two of you want to, you know, not include a cultural Mm -hmm. phenomenon, a huge phenomenon of the decade that also has been reclaimed critically as a piece of satire in recent years in favor of, I don't know, 14 Er uh, Errol Morris documentaries. I mean, if (laughs) if that's the kind of tournament you want. Okay.
0: Yeah. Well, I fear a lot more criticism is ahead for the bracket committee myself and our producer sam this week film spotting madness does get underway with the play-in round all 30 (laughs) contests. later in the show we will talk through the ones that were easy for us and we'll talk through the toughest matchups but first
1: let's head to that last prison cell on the left a couple of chairs are out there waiting for us it's our sacred cow anniversary review of the silence of the lambs Oh, Agent Starling, you think you can dissect me with this blunt little tool?
0: No, I, I, I thought that your knowledge...
1: You're so ambitious, aren't you? Do you know what you look like to me with your good bag and your cheap shoes? You look like a robe. A well-scrubbed, hustling robe with a little taste. Good nutrition's given you some length of bone, but you're not more than one generation from poor white trash, are you, Agent Starling? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed, pure West Virginia. does your father to do? Is he a coal miner? Does he stink of the land? lamb? You know how quickly the boys found you, all those tedious, sticky fumblings in the backseats of cars,
0: while you could only dream of getting out, getting anywhere, getting all the way to the end Hello, Joshua. Oh, boy. Oh, no. <laughs> you know what you look like to me? With your fancy socks and brightly colored pants, you look like a critic. A well-read, hustling critic with a little taste. Good watching has given you some length of perspective, but you're not more than one generation from the Three Stooges, are you, Joshua? And that accent you've tried so desperately to shed. Pure South Suburban Chicago. What is your father? (laughs) Is he a cop? Does he stink of gun oil? You know how quickly Debbie found you. All those dates to the movie theater while you could only dream of getting out. Getting anywhere. Getting all the way to the Chicago Sun-Times. One of those dates was on Valentine's Day, 1991. You took your girl to see the hot new Jonathan Demme movie everyone was so titillated by. Your parents, who saw it first found it so lurid, so depraved, they precluded you from entering. But you lied. You disobeyed, didn't you? And you've disobeyed again in preparation for this Sacred Cow review. Sacred Cow, by the way, very tasty. I recommend eating it with some fava beans. Oh, and no. And only fava <laughs> beans. <laughs> you still wake up sometimes, don't you? You wake up in the dark and hear your parents' warning. (laughs) Now that you've rewatched it with adult eyes, tell me, what do you think it was about The Silence of the Lambs that so unnerved your parents? Were they right? Do the thrilling performances from Jodie Foster and Anthony Hopkins and those demi-close-ups lens by Tak Fujimoto where the characters seem to be burrowing deep into your restless soul Conveniently disguised what is really just dressed up schlock.
1: <laughs> I'm undone. I'm unraveled scene. <laughs> psychologically. I, I'm now naked before Success. you. <laughs> uh yes, the silence of the parents. Oh if only <laughs> if only I could ever have achieved that. <laughs> I would have grown to be a, a healthy mm. adult. Um, really, critics critics wear colored pants. I didn't know that was well. A... <laughs> the one I'm looking at does. Well done, sir. Um, oh my goodness, where to start? I I don't I I still don't know what it was they ob- objected to. I mean, take your pick. When I rewatch this movie. It is so much grislier um, than, I, than I remembered, for one thing. Mm-hmm. It starts when we're in Crawford's office. It, it puts it right there in your face at the beginning. We see his evidence photos of Buffalo Bill's victims. And you kind of know, like, we're not going to, though it became a... Oscar, obviously, you know, Oscar contender and winner and sort of a, it became a prestige picture, but for sure, the movie itself is going to tell you right away. That doesn't mean (laughs) this is not a grisly serial killer thriller. Um, so it could have been that it could have been, um, I don't know. I I, I mean, really, it's there's a lot in here that you could understand why they say maybe go go find yourselves a romantic comedy for this for this date. You two kids. Um, But, you know, I've in revisiting it probably at least once since then uh, before we did for this show. You do understand. I think you do understand the elements that elevate it. Beyond the normal serial killer thrillers that we would get to the point of winning all those Oscars. And I think for Oscar voters, right, it was the acting. I think that was kind of the the thing they could point to and say, um, we don't always get acting like this in genre pieces, genre material like this. Um, and uh, at the same time, it's very well-crafted i mean this is a, a, a astonishingly crafted film and in, in the ways you've talked about already with the cinematography um and, and the editing too i believe the editing was nominated for an oscar uh, and you know but for me it's the one thing you touched on that does ultimately elevate the science of the lambs and it is that demi touch it is that um the the searching for the humanity in inhumane material uh, he seemed like um poor match for this material at the time. And even in retrospect, even looking at his filmography, it still stands out. Um, and I think what he does is is bring an emphasis on the people on the screen and their emotional, the emotional registers that they're experiencing. And let me give you just kind of a throwaway scene that I think is, is actually a defining example of this. It's when Starling and Crawford go to the funeral of one of Buffalo Bill's victims. Yeah. And uh, Crawford, you know, does one of the chauvinistic power plays uh, and tells Starling to wait. He's going to go talk to the, the men, yeah. um, you know, the cops there right. and they're going to talk nope. this out. He says later it was a smokescreen. He does. He's doing it for effect. He does. Yeah. And that's a, and one of the great sort of, um, I don't know if you could call it feminist, but again, humanist moments is when Clarice responds to him and says, but it matters. You yep. know, it matters that you acted that way in front of those men. I mm-hmm. love that little exchange. Um, but when he leaves her there in this funeral parlor, she... She steps forward to a door and kind of peers through and and sees the young woman's grieving family, and she spends a few minutes just watching them. Now, she's observing for as part of her job, right, as collecting clues, but she's also connecting with the pain. Um, and I think you see that later when she's in another victim's bedroom. She's taking clues, but she's connecting with the pain, too. And at that point uh demi's camera is clarice's point of view it's looking for the humanity in that moment um again a throwaway thing but i a throwaway moment but i think you get that sensibility in so much of the movie often it is in those close-ups those demi Mm -hmm. close-ups which are given to crawford they're given to Lecter, even in moments um and and they're mostly given to starling so that We understand, the again, the emotional experience she's going through, where we get that in some, you know, not genre pictures aren't always devoid of that, but it is Mm -hmm. very much at the forefront in The Silence of the Lambs. For me, uh, in this revisit, that was the thing that probably stood out to me.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great point about Demi's humanity and how we see it displayed on screen. I will go back and say that if The Silence of the Lambs is indeed schlock and- Like you, I had forgotten just how grisly it was. I forgot how kind of absurd it all is and the register that it's kind of played at. But you know what? It's well-made, really effective schlock, where even now, 30 years later, and I watched it with my daughter, Sophie, who is 16, and we were both sitting in a heightened state of anxiety, Mm -hmm. virtually from start to finish. And I will get into a little bit more detail here in a moment about the start of this film, because I think even the very beginning plays into it. Obviously it applies as we really get into the plot and we meet Lecter and we never fully feel safe with him, even trapped behind the glass or strapped in. However tightly he might be those exchanges with Clarice that are unnerving. And then when we actually do see him inventively killing people and escaping and all the Buffalo bill stuff, especially of course at the end, yes, you are tense, Throughout, But the big discovery for me here, and I think it ties back to what you're saying in terms of it being about the people and it being about their humanity. I knew or I remembered that Lecter toyed with Clarice, not just as a trainee, but as a younger woman, an attractive woman. But I had no sense of how baked into every frame of the movie Mm -hmm. Clarice's awareness of her femininity is and the trigger that causes. And maybe I should actually reverse it. The awareness of the effect her femininity has on every man she meets. And that scene you mentioned with the cops at the funeral parlor might be the most kind of hilarious display of that. Right. In a couple instances, one, that moment with Jack where she is put in the awkward position of being sort of put off to the side and marginalized because she's a woman, but also when all of the eyes turn to her in one scene, and we'll talk more about that because that's maybe the most common effect we see here in the film, the way Demi uses the camera to train it on Clarice in particular, but every one of those cops kind of almost in unison turns and looks at her like, what are you doing here? You don't belong here. And then later, The thrill, the anxious thrill of her banishing them all from the room, her getting her revenge, Mm -hmm. if you will, even though that's not really what is on her mind. And you can see how kind of tenuous the whole thing is and how shaky she is, but she still asserts herself and says, You know what? All of you men, get out of here. We've got it from here. But I go back to the very beginning of this movie, and I was struck by the choice to show Clarice running through the woods. If you've seen the movie, you know that she's an FBI agent, you know, that she's young and she may be a little naive, but she is very smart and she is well-trained and she can take care of herself and you're not really fearful for her. But I tried to detach myself for a second, Josh, and pretend that I was just watching it for the first time. And it almost felt that way because I didn't remember this scene at all. It could be kind of a throwaway scene, but it's just her for at least a minute or two running through the woods. And I don't think you can see the FBI logo really on the shirt or the sweatshirt she's wearing. So you don't know anything about her and you almost get the sense that maybe she's being chased or maybe as a woman alone in the woods, she's in some kind of danger. And I swear to you, as soon as I was thinking all of this, Sophie sitting next to me goes, oh, she's going to get kidnapped. Hmm. That's what she thought. She immediately went to, oh, this is a damsel in distress. And I think Demi there signals to us that, I'm going to play with this throughout the entire movie, including the way that scene ultimately ends where a man, a single man, an imposing man does show up. But it turns out, of course, he's really no threat to her. But even the way it kind of does close as she goes off to meet with Jack Crawford, the man kind of ominously stares at her yeah, as if he might be thinking, what were you doing out here all by yourself, girl? So it's even there. In those interactions, even though nothing is being verbalized at all along those lines. And then, of course, the wonderful, hilarious moment we get. I don't remember if it's right then, Josh, or if it's later in the film, but doesn't she get into an elevator? And I felt like I was watching the beginning of Promising Young Woman again, where it's just like dudes in polos and khakis. And she's the only woman crowded into that elevator. And the way throughout every guy she meets, from the obnoxious Chilton to the bug guy, the bug expert... Everyone is either hitting on her or eyeing her or not trusting her or not trusting her capabilities because she's a woman, because she's a young woman, sometimes because they perceive her as an attractive woman. And that she has to reckon with that in every single moment of her day, in addition to trying to find the killer to do her job, one of the elements. Yeah, that. Jonathan Demi obviously chose to emphasize. Maybe it's there in the book, it probably is, but visually, Demi decided to make that a focal point.
1: Crawford's very clever, isn't he, using you? What do you mean, sir? Pretty young woman to turn him on. I don't believe Lecter's even seen a woman in eight years. And oh, are you ever his taste? So to speak. I graduated from UVA doctor, it is not a charm school. Good, then you should be able to remember the rules. I would be really curious to, to hear if that is in the Thomas Harris novel. The elevator shot, that's at FBI headquarters. So yeah, she's in the elevator with all these burly agents who are wearing, I think, running gear as well. And the opening running scene is absolutely a red herring. This is a movie that has a couple of very crucial red herrings in it. And so it makes sense that it would start with one. I think Foster's performance is key to this lens to watch the film through as well, because she is, Starling is... Is she's got these killers on one side of her that she's trying to deal with, um, manage or catch. And then she has these chauvinist colleagues on the other side. And she is, and so the camera's there to kind of reclaim the dignity reclaim dignity for her and then Foster's performance is to project that that at least Clarice has this firm sense of self that I think she does communicate all the time. I mean Foster I think of as just, you know, an actor of extreme intelligence. That's what she mm-hmm. seems to communicate first and foremost. It's a natural role for her here, this, you know, this um recruit that's kind of rising quickly in the ranks and You could see her mind is racing in every scene. Behind those eyes, her mind is racing. It's when she's being challenged by Lecter, but it's also, as you said, when she's negotiating the sexism and the skepticism surrounding her, she's juggling that without losing sight of the case's facts. So I think um, it's a really nice balancing act that Foster gives because you get her resilience, but then in that defining scene where she shares the memory that the movie gets its title from— You also see her fragility and you see how this extreme competence is this bulwark that she's built up against the trauma of her past. So yeah, it's a, it's an incredible performance that uh, is, is having to balance both of those things at once.
0: Right. Because you do see that fragility in her as well. And maybe hypocrisy way too strong of a word. It really is her humanity that she herself, despite that bulwark, despite how strong she is. You see little cracks. You see her succumbing to the sexual politics, I think in her own way, especially in the tension between her and Scott Glenn as Jack Crawford. See
1: double major, psych and criminology, graduated Magna, summer internships at the Reisinger Clinic. Says here, when you graduate, you want to come to work for me in behavioral science.
0: Yes, very much, sir. Very much. It seems as if maybe he's aware of the fact that he could be playing the older sort of father figure love interest to her. But also, he's trying to manipulate her in his own way so he can get her to help him solve this case. But you occasionally see in Demi's camera as well, when it's trained on Foster in some of these interactions and her smiles, her uneasy smiles, that she kind of seems to really enjoy the attention from Jack Crawford. Maybe it's because she's ambitious. That's certainly part of it. And she knows that the more she plays the game and the more she does well, and the more pleased he is with her, the better it is for her career. But there's a door that's left open there. And I love the scene. And I know we may talk about some of the editing here a little bit in more detail. I love the scene where they're talking on the phone and he's on the plane. And he says, None of this could have happened without you. We've got it all figured out and you'll be remembered for this. And you see how pleased she is Mm -hmm. with herself for getting that praise from him. And she says something. I don't remember the exact line, but she says something back to him and Demi cuts to, the plane, just doing like a maneuver, he's clearly gotten off the line. Like, he told her exactly what he needed to tell her to make her feel a certain way, but then as soon as he said it, he just hung up the phone and left her hanging.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of layers to that relationship. And, you know, what's the word that Lecter uses when he says what Starling has? It's not ambition, um, but, but it's something like that. Like, that. that's kind of the... Um, the key to unlocking her on one level for Lecter is that she has this sort of ambition. So I think that is definitely the driving force in her relationship for Crawford, but the performances are subtle enough and we get moments like that where it does allow other possibilities too, which just makes it that much more interesting. So the editing, yeah, Craig McKay was nominated for an Oscar for the editing and, you know, I, I <laughs> it's, it's more of a showy sequence, but I love the climax the back and forth, the parallel fake out that is, it's almost criminal in its duplicity in how that is used to, it's the kind of thing where I, even as it was coming, I just wished I could have wiped it from my memory because I remember the confusion, but it wasn't bad confusion the first time that happened. And I was trying to put together, now wait, where is Starling? Where is Crawford? Who are they? talking to and the editing there is just so duplicitous in this Mm -hmm. way that you even as you're being fooled you're just kind of in awe of and it's not (laughs) just one cut it's it's a it's a handful of them back and forth that's slowly lifting the veil from our Mm -hmm. eyes in a way that is uh, uh, torturous as a thriller should be and just so so effective even
0: even when you know what's coming it's still effective yeah No, it really is. I still was completely, sorry to use the cliche, on the edge of my seat. And I think that beyond it being nice cinematic trickery, like you alluded to, it's so perfect because it fits back into the scheme we've been talking about, which is throughout the entire movie, it has been about how people, how men look at Clarice. So I'm getting into the actual mechanics of that showdown at the end with buffalo bill and him putting on the night goggles Mm. and stalking her that's what we've seen the entire movie is men watching and stalking her so of course in that moment seeing that all play out from his perspective and his view of her it is just so appropriate to the film overall and i'll give you another edit i like that's really subtle and maybe it stands out to me as well because of the line that's said and i'm really zooming in on this notion of watching it's when she goes to meet Lecter for the first time and she is now gotten through the bars. She's talking to the attendant. I never had noticed before Josh that Demi so perfectly as soon as she gets on the other side, the color changes to red and it just oh, makes yeah. you as you're watching it as a viewer, it subconsciously makes you completely on alert and, and, Scared. Can I add something for to her.
1: that? The, th- sure. the thing I noticed this time, which is brilliant, speaks exactly to that. Before those red security lights turn on, they come down. It's like a basement dungeon that he's imprisoned in. Old fashioned prison bars, they have to wait for a few moments at. Did you notice how? bloody red those bars are painted so this is an element of production design it makes Mm -hmm. no real sense like why would they need everything else in that dungeon prison is like stone gray brown moldy old but this set of bars that she stands before bright bloody red and we notice that it jumps out at us and then that security light goes on and the whole screen
0: turns red it's just it's just yeah such a perfect touch and after those bloody bars finally do close and she's on the other side. The whole time we're watching that exchange, it's a fairly traditional kind of shot, reverse shot, and we fall into a little bit of the comfort zone of that as she's talking to that guy. But as soon as he says, I'll be watching, you'll do fine. On the word fine, the cut goes to a straight on shot from down the hallway of Clarice. And it, it is unnerving because now just in that one subtle cut, It has broken up the comfort of that shot, reverse shot of that conversation. And in addition to that, it's as if something is waiting for her down that hallway, right? It's not deep down the hallway, but just by moving it to that side, to that plane where we are, where the camera is, we're waiting. And now she has to actually leave the safety of that. World and she has to come down the hallway towards us, it's so great,
1: yeah. And the cinematography in a later confrontation between them in that space where you get that just beautiful, haunting shot of her looking in at Lecter's cell through the glass. We're she's facing the camera, so she's looking at us, and then Lecter comes up from behind to be closer, and his reflection just sits nicely. You can see through it, it's ghostly right next to her face, so they're having this conversation in tandem, both sharing the frame. So that, you know, Tak Fujimoto's work, it's interesting you said you were surprised at how, I I forget what word you said, but not over the top, but heightened, something like that, the movie Mm -hmm. was. And I think that's true. Uh, I I think the cinematography kind of strikes this nice balance of A lot of the scenes have almost a bureaucratic austerity to them. You could almost be watching like a TV cop show, um, a a well shot TV cop show. But that's kind of what's being emphasized. Then we get these moments of operatic intensity that I had forgotten too. I associated those with some of the more, you know, completely over the top sequels that we would get. Mm -hmm. But there is an element of that here, you know, probably... Most notably in the murder sequence after they have their confrontation in the courthouse where he's been moved and he's in this cage now in this was this was a top five demi scene for you, Adam. Um, and then the aftermath of that when he murders the security guards, that is this operatic intensity I'm talking about where the lighting mm-hmm. is streaming through. We get more yeah. red. So I just like the uh, the two modes that Fujimoto is working here in this film that yep. I think is I think the effect for me is it does make it scarier because as, as insane as some of the imagery gets, we then get yanked back into um, these settings that are lit like real life. And, that, right. and then that brings it closer to where I am and makes me more nervous.
0: Mm. Are you close to catching somebody, you think? Yes, we may be.
1: Did you take over this place after Mrs. Littman died? Is that right?
0: Yeah, I bought this house, uh, two years ago.
1: Did she leave any records, any business records, tax forms, list of employees?
0: No, nothing like that at all. Say, has the FBI learned something? The police around here don't seem to have the first clue. I'll also say, as we're talking about some of the visual strengths of this film and the editing, that good editing isn't, of course, always about an actual cut or how cuts are used. It's also in the camera movement, the decision not to cut, and in the blocking. So you get a moment, for example, that might be the single scariest one in the whole movie, Josh, actually, in its own way, which is that introductory scene, I think, with Lecter, where as she comes around— He's just standing there in the middle of the cell. Yeah, the stillness. Looking at her, waiting for her. The stillness of it, right? The fact that that camera and her point of view comes around and we see Mm -hmm. him there waiting. Whereas anybody else in the real world, you go to have a meeting with someone, they're doing whatever they do. They're going about their day. You walk in and you then strike up a conversation. But no, he's standing in that awkward place awkwardly. (laughs) And every time she meets with him, even in that cell notice that he's always in a different part of the cell, right? And sometimes he's shrouded in darkness differently or more visible in the light. And they play with that too in terms of sort of veiling with the characters where I noticed this time that you don't really get a full look at who Buffalo Bill is, Ted Levine playing that character until, Josh, Demi has actually given us more information about who he is. I'll try to explain that. We don't get a glimpse of him as a full figure. It's always his head just around a corner or it's his face and his body while he's at night moving that couch, that whole ruse to get the woman in the van with him. But we don't really feel like we know who this character is. The whole movie is about Buffalo Bill. Every interaction between Clarice and Hannibal Lecter is about Buffalo Bill. And... Demi is restrained, he withholds, he doesn't show us who he is, what he really fully looks like, and how imposing or not imposing a figure he is, until we have finally had some conversations between Lecter and Clarice about who he really is and what his pathology is. And it's like almost on cue, after Demi does that, we then see him putting on the makeup, and we see his whole body, and we see him be himself or at least the vision of himself he wants to be i did want to say
1: about the buffalo bill character uh jb gum played by ted levine you know especially because i brought up this whole issue of humanity you could argue and uh you know people have been arguing this especially Mm -hmm. the transgender community since the film came out um that the sense of humanity does not extend to this character um and i think you can agree that because um His gender is kind of wrapped up. Basically, it's unavoidable that the movie uses his gender issues to freak the audience out. And I know Demi has spoke to this and expressed some regret to some degree. Um, It's a very complicated topic, but I think is one worth considering and I was really glad to see um, rather than speak on it myself, the AV Club ran um, a really informative, helpful article by Harmony Colangelo. I think it was just this week, maybe the week before, because of the 30th anniversary that traces the history of these complaints about the film Mm -hmm. and really some of the nuance about what might be questionable about the depiction here. So we'll link to that in the show notes because I think it is important, especially in the, this context of how much humanity there is in the movie, because it it does, you know, those camera angles are given to Lecter that I was talking about, those extreme close-ups, and it's debatable whether Jamie Gum gets that sort of treatment. Now, he's the villain in a serial killer thriller, but we've talked about how the Silence of the Lambs has elevated above the genre in many other ways, and maybe this is one way it doesn't.
0: Yeah, maybe not. And I will admit that I have not read that article yet or really wrestled with this topic, though I am definitely aware of it. I feel like the movie at least tries to get itself out of that debate or tries to cover itself, whether or not you buy it or not. And again, this is 1991 when this movie is coming out. But it says that, you know, of course, he's not really. A right. That's yeah, that's not, that's not who he is. It's it's more that his pathology is all cut up in this complete distortion of who he really is and what his identity is. He only thinks he is or perceives himself as transgender, which covers them a little bit. Maybe, Josh.
1: Yeah. I, while watching it knowing this was in the back of my head, I made note of that too. And Colangelo's piece directly addresses that sort of Mm. self-protection and maybe what the movie was trying to do and where that might fall short too. So yeah, definitely recommend reading that. So we haven't really talked about Hopkins. And I'm I'm hoping to bring it up. Can we save it for for our top five? Anthony Hopkins top five or or at least save most of it, because he's definitely going to be on my list. Um, Obviously, it's a strength. That's what I said. You could see why Oscar voters saw, you know, this is a way in to honoring a movie like this when you get a performance like this. Um, I'm sure there's tons of things
0: we can say. So maybe I don't know, you want to touch on at least one and then we save the rest. You know what? Let's table the hopkins talk we're going to have plenty of it over the next week or so here on the show silence of the lambs is currently available to rent on most platforms you might also find a dvd copy in some really creepy abandoned storage unit good luck with that search if you see it and agree or disagree with our takes email us feedback at filmspotting.net now i'd be remiss josh if we didn't close with a voicemail from someone who i think is an even bigger legend than anthony hopkins and (laughs) I did just find out about this right before we started recording, and I knew we had to save it for the end because it would kind of ruin my feeble attempt at a Lecter-inspired intro if we got to it earlier in the conversation. Why don't we go ahead and close with it? In fact, this is your father giving us his take on that infamous encounter, Valentine's Night, 1991, in the parking lot of a movie theater. I
1: feel I feel like I'm on an episode of Mori Povich or something. <laughs> Hello, film spotting. Josh's dad here. Imagine my delight at hearing the story of the silence of the lambs parking lot deception again. Laugh every time I hear it. And thanks for remarking, Josh, that your parents were discerning about film and not Moral Police. After all, why would we have reservations about you and Debbie seeing a movie featuring a manipulative cannibal killer on Valentine's Day? The real reason? You've been dating Debbie since the sixth grade, and we didn't want you to lose her. The real question, why were your parents seeing silence on Valentine's Day? What were we thinking? Keep up the good work, and glad Adam had a good laugh. Take care.
0: Bye. Your dad's the best. I love that he took the time to explain his side of things well and muddle the story a bit i mean that's right yes
1: we debbie and i began dating relatively young it was not middle school
0: no it, it I'm, was, I'm sorry the new narrative is sixth grade yeah we're please with that. my goodness
1: uh i think we had been dating for a year by the time that came out so we were okay. juniors and um yeah thanks for that dad all right the road <laughs> to film spotting madness championship begins we only have one thousand two hundred and thirty eight contenders Okay, maybe not that many, but we're going to run through some of the play-in matchups to this year's bracket-style tournament when we come back. Stay with us. Thank Barb and Star for hosting tonight's talking club and you're making their hot dog soup. I like the salt. I like the hot dog. It's
0: not as runny as it usually is. Who doesn't love hot dog soup? You're listening to Film Spotting. That's from the trailer for <laughs> Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar. Starring Kristen Wiig and Annie Mumolo. It came to VOD last weekend. Wig and Mumolo play best friends who leave their Midwestern town for the first time to vacation in Vista Del Mar, Florida, where, Josh, I don't know. I haven't seen it. I assume hijinks ensue. Now, it says here in my notes, a Midwestern town. Did Hollywood here go for Iowa Is the easy joke, or do we not know where they come from?
1: No, if, if memory serves, and the hijinks are so high in Barb and Star, I may have forgotten this, but i if memory serves, I think it starts in Nebraska.
0: Okay, close enough. Okay. Well, over on Letterboxd, Our friend Matt Singer shared his review of Barb and Star. It's really quite something. He gave it five stars writing Barb and Star go to Vista Del Mar. Isn't a movie. It's a wavelength. You either get on it or you don't. I'm sure some viewers (laughs) will complain. The Barb and Star are so quirky and chipper that they're annoying or that the film's comedy is too bizarre and random. Take my advice. Cut those people out of your life. You don't need to associate yourself with anyone who is that wrong about something this important. You did catch up with Barb and Starr over the weekend. Josh, tell us if you got on its wavelength or is Matt Singer never talking to you again?
1: Oh, that would be that would be terrible. So the pressure here is is great. I think Matt is probably oh, this is a ton of fun. Let me start by saying that. But he's probably it is up trolling a a, a word something like that. I mean, he's definitely <laughs> sure. tr- trolling in a positive direction because Barb and Star, um 5 out of 5. Maybe maybe a bit overenthusiastic, but I had a ton of fun with this and I think the probably what resonated with me the most is just this dual performance that Wig and Mumolo are giving as these title characters. I really don't know if I've seen anything like it. Uh, there are, you know, there are performances where actors will finish each other's sentences, sometimes to express romance, sometimes to express comedy. These two just talk constantly at the same time yet. They're always in agreement and they're encouraging each other. They're affirming each other. It's really like if you've ever seen any variation on the Abbott and Costello routine, who's on first, where they are constantly at odds trying to identify players on a baseball team. And the whole point of that sketch is that there's just conflict. They're confusing each other. This is the absolute opposite where these two best friends for life just think that the other is so great that when one of them starts talking, the other just starts talking and immediately starts agreeing and affirming her. And it Mm -hmm. goes back and forth. And we get a third party just looking at them in astonishment and confusion. And that just, It it was delightful. I mean, I can see why some people might find it annoying. And the movie does, once it gets to Florida, kind of shift into an absolutely insane gear that involves like talking animatronic crabs and a spy plot. Uh, Kristen Wiig has a a secondary role as this villain. And you can tell it's trying to become more than an extended Wiig SNL sketch character sketch which is what she does so well that section mileage may vary some of the jokes hit some of the jokes miss adam you you would love to hear as a 50 shades aficionado of those films Mm. A highlight is Jamie Dornan, the star of those films, plays this um, spy sort of villain that the women fall in love with. He gets a great dance number on the beach that comes out of nowhere, and I was trying to identify him while it was going on. Where have I seen this guy? He's great. This is fantastic. I knew he was probably someone who'd never done anything like this before, and they cast him and gave him a shot at doing this broad comedy, and sure enough, looked it up afterwards, Jamie Dornan from Fifty Shades. So, if nothing else, add. Them. that should appeal to you if you want to check out Barb and Star.
0: Yeah. Hashtag not my Christian. Sorry, Josh. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> not my Christian Grey. Oh, boy. Okay. Speaking, speaking of talking animatronic crabs, yes. next week on Film Spotting, more Anthony Hopkins. <laughs> the Father, starring Hopkins and Olivia <laughs> Coleman, opens in limited release next weekend. There is lots of buzz, Josh, about Hopkins getting an Oscar nomination at least For his performance, we will have a few thoughts on The Father, along with our top five Anthony Hopkins performances. Josh, you've been doing some Hopkins homework you caught up with, as I was overjoyed to hear last week on the show, Remains of the Day, a movie I just adore. And you affirmed my stance on that film. So good. Including my stance on it back in the 90s, that it's truly great. Do you want to enlighten us about any other Hopkins homework you've been doing well along the merchant ivory spectrum i also caught up with howard's end
1: not not as great i would say hopkins very good in no, it it's not. and uh the lion in winter which we will yeah. be discussing for film spotting family members on patreon Lotus content one of his earliest roles i also watched. so might might if the stars align, be able to fit in Nixon as well. I think that's Hmm. next on my list because that's one I've never seen either. So we'll see how things go. But so far have been enjoying my Anthony Hopkins retrospective.
0: Yeah, I have a couple I need to catch up with as well, though Nixon is not one of them.
1: Also next week on the show, we will play Massacre Theater where we perform a scene from a movie and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. In case
0: you missed it, here's a bit of last week's Massacre. Listen to me, you clock stuffer. I'll eat your fuzzy bolts for breakfast. You understand me, every fussing one of you. This is life or death, not a fussing game, Jackie. This is my say so. Now you tell me.
1: Adam, have you been have you been cursing people out in this last week using those faux swear words? <laughs> Has it I mean become really,
0: contagious? Yeah, some of Sam's best work. Let's note. <laughs> None of that comes from the actual very well-written screenplay. And if you know what film we massacred, well, we'd really like to know how you did it because it's possible that even that screenwriter or one of the actors in it wouldn't know what the film is. (laughs) Email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The odds of you winning, if you get it, are really good because we apparently stymied a lot of people. The hat is not brimming. You have until Monday, February 22nd. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced on next week's show. Maybe this is a little bit of a clue I'll throw in, Josh, for listeners. Going back to your father making an appearance at the tail end there of Mm -hmm. our Silence of the Lambs, Sacred Cow Review, and factoring into my setup, I just want to note, for the official record, your dad, not a cop. Okay. I'm I'm glad we cleared that up. (laughs) Something that we neglected to mention last week on the show, and we really have no good excuse for it. The passing of Christopher Plummer died on February 5th, 91 years old, still probably best known for playing Captain Von Trapp in The Sound of Music from 1965, which is still a blind spot for me, Josh. What? Never seen it. Oh my goodness. Well, I mean, you haven't seen Remains of the Day. Yeah, but I, I'm just, I was just
1: thinking as a musical, you know, know, you would, you would have that interest. And, you know, speaking of that plumber, really the curse of any high schooler who ever wanted to be in The Sound of Music and be Von Trapp because he just had, you know, this, he has this regal bearing in the film, this, this maturity. There, there's some, you know, chinks in the armor there too. That's crucial to the role. But, I think it's the maturity part that that Plummer has. That when you see these kids in these high school productions trying to be Von Trapp, just can't live up to no. that guy. For some, yeah, for some reason, it's it's tough tough to fit that bill.
0: Why do you stare at me that way? Well, you don't look at all like a sea captain, sir. I'm afraid you don't look very much like a governess. Turn around, please. What? And turn. A three-time Oscar nominee for Supporting Actor, played J. Paul Getty in All the Money in the World, Tolstoy in The Last Station, and then he won the Oscar in 2012 for Mike Mills Beginners with Ewan McGregor. Of course, so good as Mike Wallace in The Insider. He's in Terrence Malick's The New World. Very good there. And of course, Ryan Johnson's Knives Out as the Patriarch. A seven-time Tony nominee. As well, Josh, his earliest nomination coming in 1959 and then most recently nominated in 2007 for Inherit the Win with Brian Dennehy. Show of hands, producer Sam stumped us with this one, Josh, if you knew that Christopher Plummer is also the father of Amanda Plummer. Yeah,
1: surprise to both that? of us. I don't know. I did want yeah. to note uh, in regards to Plummer, though. I saw our friend Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune uh, when he tweeted a link to his obituary. Just summed it up so perfectly in a single phrase. Here's what here's what Michael said: "A voice like a viola and a smile like Lucifer." I mean I saw that tweet. That's so it, right. So yeah, that's so it. we'll link we'll link to that obit in the show notes as well.
0: Yeah, Michael Phillips. He might have a career ahead of him. I'm not sure. Someone else, sadly, from the film world that we recently lost is Michael Apted. And I appreciate longtime listeners, Lisa and Chris from Air Massachusetts, writing in Josh to make sure we gave a little bit of time. To the passing of Michael Apted.
1: While well, Apted has a number of prestige narrative films such as Coal Miner's Daughter and Gorillas in the Mist, the work that he's been best known for and most proud of was his Seven Up documentary series. And after diving into his revolutionary Seven Up series a few years ago, I immediately became deeply engrossed in the lives of the series' fourteen participants. With each new installment, I fretted or became overjoyed as I watched the group slowly grow older in Thatcher-era Britain and grapple with the weighty issues of life that are universal to us all. The series was originally intended as an examination of the class social system in Britain but it quickly grew into so much more and although Apted had hoped to continue this series until he was 99 giving us another two decades of the series sadly that is not to be thus making last year's 63 Up the final doc I cannot stress enough just how important this documentary series is and I have a feeling that not enough folks have seen them so I would like to suggest a blind spotting in honor of Apted a double feature of 7 Up which is 40 minutes and 14 Up or 7 seven plus seven, 53 minutes. Even the great Roger Ebert himself loved the series and included them in his top 10 of all time.
0: Well, Lisa is trying to appeal to our appreciation for short running times, Josh, and she's making a yes. good case though. She had me at seven up series because it's indeed a longtime blind spot for me, which is also hard being the guy who Tends to talk about how much he loves documentaries here on the show. I've regretted it for some time. I know how much Ebert loved that series. And I do recall that when quarantine started, when we hit March and we were all so innocent and thought, well, this will just be a couple of weeks where we're all kind of sitting at home and then life will go back to normal. I thought, you know what? I'm going to use this time. I'm going to watch this series. Everyone started making the mm-hmm. list of, you know, I'm going to watch Breaking Bad or Mad Men or something. I was like, yeah. I'm going to watch seven up. I do think, if I recall correctly, this was last March, I think I watched 7-Up, but that's it. I wasn't mm-hmm. able to keep going in the series, so I would love to find an excuse to force myself to sit and watch those films. Yeah, you're you're one installment ahead of me then, so definitely need to add this to the blind spotting list. This week on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, you can hear Uneasy Riders Part 1, Nomadland, paired with... Albert Brooks, Lost in America, a movie that is currently fighting for its life in film spotting madness as part of our play in round. The Next Picture Show is hosted by the great Tasha Robinson, Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias and Genevieve Kosky. New episodes are available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. You can get more information at nextpictureshow.net.
1: We mentioned the bonus show that we're going to be recording just after this one, actually on The Lion in Winter. That is available or will be available to the Film Spotting family over on Patreon, which is a new way. About a year now, we've been doing this that you can support the show. For a mere five bucks a month, you get yes. Those bonus episodes, but also ad free episodes via a dedicated RSS feed, early show downloads, live pre sales and discounts, and a merch discount. We also offer family members a chance to play our monthly trivia spotting game. Trivia spotting seven, we've done, we're about to have done seven of these now, Adam, is just this weekend. We always involve special surprise guests, filmmakers, critics who show up Mm -hmm. and are a part of the fun. And We have, because we passed 1,000 patrons on Patreon, our virtual watch party celebration. We're going to watch Top Gun with everyone who's a family member. That's taking place March 6th. You're (laughs) going to provide commentary. Sam will Uh provide commentary. I'm just going to sit back and laugh, I think.
0: Okay. Well, fair enough. I will point out to people wondering who some of these special guests are going to be this time, some of the new players, at least four new players— I think we're going to have two fourths of the next picture show for the first time. Nice. We've only ever had Keith Phipps. I think Tasha actually joined us too. You know what? Yep. See, I just ruined it. I think we had Tasha and Keith on our last one. Well, one of those two will be back and another next picture show host will be rotated in making their so debut.
1: If I followed all that, there's still one. We've got a snag.
0: Yeah, that's correct. And okay, well, I'm going to give it away now. I'm going to give it away though. <laughs> Okay, okay, the irony is the one next picture show host, critic we adore, who, as of these first seven trivia spotting events, has yet to participate, is the one who hosted. <laughs> film spotting as a special guest critic first and has appeared on the show way more times than anyone else. You know what? I'll just leave it at that. If you know your hmm. film spotting trivia, you know which critic I'm talking about. We will shame him into playing yes. trivia, Josh. I like that.
1: We are also offering annual memberships to family members on Patreon. So rather than a monthly contribution, you can sign up for a year. And if you do that, you will get a 10% discount. So check it out at patreon.com slash film Okay, uh, what we've got is parts and labor $2,300 okay. in tax. I just looked up the value on your van with that high a mileage, you're looking
0: about five thousand dollars at the most.
1: I'd probably recommend um taking that money and putting it towards a different vehicle. Yeah, no, well, I
0: can't do that, I can't do that. See, because all right, um. I uh, I spent a lot of time and money building the inside out, and um, a lot of people don't understand the value of that, but um, it's not something like we can... I live in there. It's my home. Francis McDormand in Nomadland. Chloe Zhao's film expands to more theaters this weekend. It also comes exclusively to Hulu. The movie and McDormand are expected to get some attention from the Oscars when nominations are announced next month. We did talk a little bit about Nomadland back in November. Have not had a chance to revisit it yet, but it did inspire our current film spotting poll, which asks you, what is your favorite solo road trip movie? The options, Josh, were David Lynch's The Straight Story. Sean Penn's Into the Wild, Kelly Reichert's Wendy and Lucy, Agnes Varda's Vagabond, or Other. How did it come out? Well,
1: Other is in last place with 6% of the vote. And I think the rest of this maybe shook out in terms of... Just the titles people have seen because we did have a few more obscure options on here, including Agnes Varda's Vagabond, which received 11% of the vote. You and I both went that way, Adam, but we've only seen Vagabond because we did a Varda marathon a couple years ago. So clearly more people still need to see it. Kelly Reichert's Wendy and Lucy received 22% of the vote and then very, very, very close here at the top with 30% of the vote. Sean Penn's into the wild. But
0: taking this with 30.67% is David Lynch's The Straight Story. Wait, so I'm just realizing this, looking at the math, it really came down to less than a percentage point between those two? Uh, if the information Sam has provided is correct. Wow. Wow. Well, and congratulations. Into the wild.
1: Into the Wild was leading for most of
0: the voting, I, think it I was. believe, right? So yeah. yeah. Congratulations to David Lynch, Richard Farnsworth, like the turtle, slow and steady, On the lawnmower, the tractor mower, winning this race by less than a percentage point. Dylan Dom wrote in, said, it has to be the straight story. Knowing Lynch's propensity for the weird and supernatural and loving him for that, I was struck by just how straightforward and grounded this film was. I'm from a small town very much like the one that Mr. Straight was from, and I know many people like the ones that inhabit this film. Lynch captured small town life and the human spirit in a way few others have managed to do, and the conversation between Richard Farnsworth's Alvin and Wiley Harker's Verlin in the bar about their experience Experiences in World War II has stuck with me ever since. It was a true revelation to me and a film I hope to share with my family someday.
1: We got this note from Adam Graff. Wow, these polls are really easy when your favorite movie is in there. Into the wild. Yeah,
0: I imagine that makes it easier, Adam. (laughs) Jonathan Anderson in Denver. When I still lived in North Dakota, and going just about anywhere meant a road trip of some length. I always started out by playing the Into the Wild soundtrack, and now I associate it with Wanderlust. Even knowing the innumerable mistakes McCandless made and the poor outcome of his journey, I still found myself wanting to go with him. And somehow, Into the Wild still wasn't my favorite movie of 2007. What a year that was. Here's John Kissel. Into the Wild deeply
1: affected the version of myself that was in a period of falling away from my parents' influence. But Andrew Hayes' Lean on Pete is my preferred solo road trip movie, based on Charlie Plummer's achingly heartfelt performance of a teen who knows he should ask for help but doesn't have the language to do so and can
0: only tell the truth to his equine road buddy. So, great pick of Lean on Pete. Charlie Plummer, I'm going to say no relation to Amanda or Christopher. Uh, But I should be wrong. Probably check that out. Google that. Maybe. Okay, Mitch McGonigal says all of the movies here are great, but Wendy and Lucy is an endlessly watchable and heartbreaking movie. Michelle Williams gives a career best performance and Lucy is arguably a top five movie dog. Kelly Riker is one of the most distinct and skilled living filmmakers. And Wendy and Lucy is a perfect starting point for anyone wanting to dive into her filmography.
1: All right, Adam, it looks like Charlie Plummer. (laughs) What? Wait, wait. No, he is not Christopher. I was thrown off because looking here, he appeared (laughs) with Christopher Plummer. Really? Apparently in All the Money in the World. That's right. He was in it. Yeah. But now looking, this is IMDb, mind you. It says at the end here, Charlie splits time between New York City and Upstate with his mother, actress Maya Guest, father, writer, and producer John Christian
0: Plummer. Okay. I'm so glad we settled this. And settling out our listener comments on this poll, Joe Thomas, no love for Vagabond? Brutal, ambitious, complex, sweet little grandma Agnes Varda was tough as nails. Yeah, only six percent, but got our votes, Joe, were with you. Thank you to everyone who participated in that poll question and left a comment. We don't have a new poll to share with you because we have many polls to share with you. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. this madness. This is absolute madness,
1: Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? madness.
0: This is Sparta! Here we go, Josh. (laughs) Film Spotting Madness, (laughs) our (laughs) annual bracket-style tournament. The brainchild, not of us, but of listener Mike Merrigan. The seventh edition of Madness is upon us. We finished up a three-year undertaking last year with our best of the 2010s. Before that, the best of the 90s and the 2000s. We did debate What this year's tourney should be before ultimately settling on going a little bit backwards and focusing on the best of the 1980s this week, it's the play in round. So these are just the films that are fighting for a chance to get to the big dance. The final list of 64, the play in round is a relatively new addition to madness, but it has become increasingly elaborate i'm going <laughs> to go ahead and blame sam for that oh, this boy. was completely his idea but josh you know what i could have talked him off the ledge and in fact what did i do i leaned into it of course I gave, you him, did. I gave him more leash and i agreed here we are and if you want just a brief history here in 2017 that was the first year we decided to do a play-in scenario we looked at the best movies that are in the film-spotting pantheon, and we also included movies we've done Sacred Cow reviews of. So Silence of the Lambs would have been eligible, obviously, if we were doing it this year. We only had one play-in. You had to pick Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles. 2018, we looked at the 90s. We did nine play-ins. Then 2019, 17 play-ins. And then for the best of the 2010s last year, we had 17 again. And this year, it is 30.
1: 30. I don't think anything... Uh, characterizes how this show operates better than that recent history. I mean, yeah. the, the only thing, you know what? You know what I think we indulgence. need to do next year, Adam? Pure indulgence. Next year, I think we should have a pre tournament tournament of all of the options we're considering for Film Spotty Madness 2022. So are you following me here? We yeah, come I up am. With 64
0: ideas. <laughs> yes. Sam's planning it right now. <laughs> what are you talking about? And you may recall. That last year, when we crowned the best film of the 2010s, we had at least 32 great movies left over. So just for our family members on Patreon, we did the Fit Tournament, the Film Spotting Invitational Tournament. Oh my goodness,
1: I forgot about the Fit. We we
0: crowned the Fit winner, just like the NIT in basketball. So Sam and I haven't even talked about that yet.
1: I'm growing faint.
0: (laughs) But yes, almost half of the 64 Madness titles will need to survive a play-in to make it to the tourney. Giving us a little bit of credit here. The goal of the play around round is to give as many deserving films as possible a chance to compete. Now, what that really means in English is we want to be able to say to people, we didn't leave it off. Don't be mm-hmm. mad at us. Mm-hmm. That's really what's happening. As if you can ever, these, as if it won't ever reach that point. It won't work. Lots of these play and matchups are between films by a single director. I think that will make a lot of sense. People will understand why we didn't want to overwhelm it with multiple films by one director. But we do also have some good genre matchups that I know we'll get into here in a moment. And some of the matchups are maybe a little bit more creative. We have our Metal Men Terminator versus RoboCop are animated ladies. You have to pick The Little Mermaid or Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Okay, Boomer, it's The Big Chill or it's Diner. You can't have both. And there's The Full Monty, though this is an easy one, A Fish Called Wanda versus The Meaning of Life. So there had to be some of these that were really easy for you. There Mm. had to be some that were really difficult for you. Also, the first time you are getting a look at any of these choices, you are not part of the bracket as you joked about earlier you no. abdicated that responsibility left it so sam and i can go crazy together yeah
1: i you know what i i i prefer sleep
0: yeah well <laughs> you always were the smart one of our little trio <laughs> tell us about the toughest choices for you mm. all right so looking at uh, the concoction
1: <laughs> we now have and without offering any complaints i have no right to complain The difficult ones for me here, well, you know it was going to be the Burton trifecta, having to choose among three Burton Mm -hmm. films when maybe he was working at his peak, probably, I think you could say in the 80s. So you guys put Batman versus Beetlejuice versus Pee-wee's Big Adventure, love them all. We did a Sacred Cow review of Batman, and I think we're both surprised at how much we still love that movie. Pee-wee's Big Adventure I will always love, but I think in this instance, Forced to Choose, which is the horrible thing that Film Spotty Madness does, I think I have to go with Beetlejuice. It just seems the purest Burton, and so that's my rationale there. That one doesn't trouble you at all, though, does it, Adam?
0: No, actually, it doesn't. As much as I do appreciate all three films, though I don't appreciate them on the same level you do— I think Batman is the one of the three I most want to make sure is still around for multiple viewing. So it's Batman for me. One of my toughest, Josh, is the baseball trifecta. Mm. You have to pick between Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, or The Natural. So not just picking between the two Costners, the comedy versus the one that makes your heart melt, if you have any kind of soul at all. Or the Robert Redford classic. And I do truly love all three of these baseball movies. But having to pick, it is Field of Dreams. I'm going to go with the more sentimental one. The one that really still, when I think about certain scenes, chokes me up a little bit. I don't know what to say, Josh. It does just resonate with me. And I think it always will. So I'm going with that over the comedy.
1: And I think that's probably where the vote will go to. It's probably where I would lean. This caused a lot of angst on social media. It was like the first matchup that I think people responded to. I don't have that love for baseball that I think a lot of people do, which ties them to these movies. I think if I saw Bull Durham again, it's been so long, I might end up leaning that way. But having seen Field of Dreams and enjoying it quite a bit more recently, I'd probably vote that way.
0: The Natural, you know what? I don't need it, Adam. I don't need The Natural. You don't need it, huh? No. I definitely need The Natural, but I'm a little bit surprised you went with Field of Dreams, only because I know why you can't appreciate that movie more as... We got the evidence during our first segment. You had way too healthy of a relationship with your father. Yeah. So Field of Dreams just doesn't connect with you no, the well, way it you know does what? with so many of us.
1: Instead of a catch, we just kind of yeah. talked. We talked and that's, that seemed what? to work pretty. That worked pretty good too. Wait.
0: <laughs> I. You didn't know that was an option? I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. Moving on. Your next toughest pick here in the playing round.
1: All right. Little Mermaid versus Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I'm going to go with Roger Rabbit just because of the irreverence. Uh, I think that that puts it ahead for me, but not an easy choice at all. And then on the totally different end of the spectrum, how about Largent, the Robert Brisson final Mm. film versus The Sacrifice, Andre Tarkovsky's final film? two enigmatic transcendent masters you guys are pitting against each other here making us choose we couldn't have we couldn't have two masterpieces in in the tournament heaven forbid so we have to choose one here i think for me sacrifice the sacrifice is more searing in my memory and maybe that's just because it has a levitation scene that's reminiscent of what we get in St. Maud. So I've been thinking about that lately. I think it's uh, Doberson's Large definitely has its visual elements. The Sacrifice has some astonishing, masterful sequences from Tarkovsky. So that one really does hurt, but it's going to be The Sacrifice
0: for me. It's funny because listeners who feel maybe as of late, and this could be the last year or two even, or maybe beyond that, The two of us don't disagree enough on the show, Josh, not that we're going to get into heated arguments here, but it's in film spotting madness that you see the different upbringings we had. You see the different taste in cinema we have, because so far you've named three matchups that for me were three of the easiest ones. And it's probably the same for you as I get through the rest of mine, because it was very easy to pick the Little Mermaid over who framed Roger Rabbit. And although I did have to give it some consideration, I'm more of a Brisson guy than I am a Tarkovsky guy, though I have some major Tarkovsky blind spots, I have to confess. Largent, my clear winner there. So we'll see if these were difficult for you or not. The Marty matchup, four Martin Scorsese films. Only one of them can make it. Raging Bull, don't worry, it's safe. But we're only gonna let you pick one of these. After Hours, The Color of Money, The King of Comedy, and The Last Temptation of Christ. For me, it comes down pretty simply to The Color of Money, And the king of comedy. And I know that the king of comedy is the right answer. I know that the king of comedy is probably even the movie I've rated higher on a letterbox list of Scorsese movies. And yet this is the thing about madness. This is why it's madness. When you think about the stakes, the movie being put in the incinerator and you can never watch it again. I simply adore the color of money more. And that's why I'm voting for it in the play. it's not going to win, but it's getting my vote, Josh. The next one for me that was tough. The Indio Tours, Spike Lee, Jim Jarmusch, Steven Soderbergh, John Sales, the Indie Masters, the Godfathers from the 80s, Matewan, Sex, Lies, and Videotape, She's Gotta Have It versus Stranger Than Paradise. Look, you can make a great case that all four of these movies definitely belong and should not be a plan. And Stranger Than Paradise is very vivid in my mind, having just talked about it and really... Reappreciated it during our eight from '84 series last year. I think though my Soderbergh love is going to win out, and I think the more, let's say, defining film of the '80s from that quartet, *Sex Lies and Videotape*. Well, you know I'm always
1: going to go with Spike, so it's she's got to have it for me in that group. And the Marty one, I I can't vote. I, I've gotta I've gotta confess I've not seen *The Color of Money*, so hmm. I'm gonna have to abstain from this one. Otherwise it would be pretty easy for me because after hours we've talked about this. I, I'm not, when Scorsese is going for comedy first, it's just not always as successful for me as his other stuff. So After Hours, I don't like as mo- much as most people do. The Last Temptation of Christ, I think, is fascinating, but does have some flaws to it. And the king of comedy is just mm. peak form, peak form yeah. for him. So that's where I would lean. But again, I've got to abstain from this one
0: until, unless, well, I don't think it's going to happen. When do polls close again? We'll get to this, but. Yeah, Monday. The time we're recording this, you've got maybe about four days, Josh. Okay. And Nixon is like 18 hours, so I don't know, it might That's not right. work. <laughs> All right. <laughs> My next
1: difficult choice was the Blues Brothers versus planes, trains and automobiles. Also easy for me. Easy for you? Is it yeah. blues brothers?
0: Blues brothers, yeah. Okay.
1: Yeah, I think I'm I'm probably going to go that way just because of the music. It's you know, if if you're looking for something to distinguish it, to separate it for me, it's probably that music. And then my last difficult one, Nightmare on Elm Street. So glad to see that you guys included this against against all your probab- probable mm-hmm. instincts and desires, included Nightmare on Elm Street in the play-in versus Poltergeist. And this is tough because both of these titles are in my top 10 horror films of all time list. Oh, but Yeah, I Elm- didn't think this would be hard at all for you. Well, it, you know, it's hard when I first see it, but then you look at right. that list and then you think about it and you realize, oh, that's right. Elm Street is at the top, the very <laughs> top of the list. So Elm Street is where I'm going to go.
0: Yeah. I've got that as my number five easiest madness play and poltergeist for me because Nightmare on Elm Street is, I think, still the only sacred cow review we've done that I determined was a false idol. Not by Mm. much, Mm. but not the sacred cow that you think it is. Okay, so what about these two, Josh? My number two toughest matchup. You can only have one of these Vietnam classics, Oliver Stone's Platoon, Born on the Fourth of July, also from Oliver Stone, or is a Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Now, 1980s me, or let's say 1990, after Born on the Fourth of July came out, would have absolutely said that Platoon is the winner. And 2021 me says, Platoon's a distant third. Still like it, still surely have a soft spot for it, but it comes down to Full Metal Jacket, which I've always loved and always appreciated as one of Kubrick's great films, and he's got so many of them, but I've also, over the years, probably driven a little bit by the great critic Matt Zoller Seitz and his writing and talking about this film, including talking about it on our show back when his Oliver Stone book came out. I have really come to love Born on the Fourth of July, and I can't believe, I can't believe I might go against Arlie Ermy and in that incredible opening of Full Metal Jacket, but I think the pick is Born on the Fourth of July. It is the pick. It's It's the correct way to
1: go. Not that it's incredibly easy for me, but I have a pretty clear ranking, liking all three of these films quite a bit. And I think I do owe it to that conversation we had with Matt and revisiting Born on the Fourth of July. It is just, where I'm at now and what I've seen, you know, having lived through more of American history and looking back at it at a different age, the way it does criticize American masculinity in particular, I think is so distinct, especially in the war movie genre that I know those other two films are doing as well. Uh, But, but just Mm -hmm. the personal intimate way it's critiqued in Born on the Fourth of July is probably what elevates it for me.
0: Okay, well, you had to get in a crack earlier, and again, it shows our differing tastes here. The number one toughest choice for me in all of the film-spotting, madness, play-in matchups is the Errol Morris trifecta. (laughs) I can pretty easily set aside Vernon, Florida. I know a lot of people adore that film, but I truly do think, Josh, and if you haven't seen him or seen him recently, then I'm going to put it back on you to maybe reappraise these movies. I think Gates of Heaven and The Thin Blue Line are two of the best films of the 80s and certainly two of the best documentaries of the 80s, two of my favorite documentaries ever made that I have to pick between those two. Oh, Josh, I think there is a time a decade ago, maybe where I would have said it had to be the thin blue line because it was one of the movies that turned me into a fan of documentaries and made me reconsider how I view cinema and the way I think about Documentaries in particular and the subjectivity versus any perceived objectivity and how truthful a documentary really can be or should attempt to be. But over the years, I've really come to love the idiosyncrasy of Errol Morris's breakout film, the one that really put him on the map as a filmmaker, Gates of Heaven. I think that's my pick.
1: Once again, you are correct. I, I have Gates of Heaven ranked the
0: highest, although... That being said, I can't vote in this one either. Haven't seen Vernon, Florida yet. So Mm. what about I'll give one more honorable mention that was tough for me, but unlike the other ones, tough because I don't have strong feelings about either film. Appreciate them both. Appreciate the filmmaker. But I really don't know where I stand on the Manhunter versus Thief, Michael Mann matchup. I think it's Thief. Maybe because of James Kahn's performance. Now, I don't know if, Josh, you had any others you singled out. as very easy. I'll run through mine. Mentioned the number five already, A Nightmare on Elm Street versus Poltergeist, going with Poltergeist. Number four, Stand By Me versus When Harry Met Sally. Sam noted today in a Slack chat with me that if we didn't pit these two films against each other, we would have ended up with potentially four Rob Reiner films in Film Spotting Madness, Best of the 80s. And it makes sense, even though it seems to defy all logic that Rob Reiner would have four movies in there over Spielberg or Oliver Stone or Kubrick or Lynch or Woody Allen or Tim Burton. But you've got those two, and then you've got the two that are definitely in the bracket. This is Spinal Tap and The Princess Bride.
1: Yeah, I mean, it was his decade in a lot of ways, at least commercially, right?
0: Yeah, well, I'm going to offend a lot of people when I say of those two Stand By Me is one I like decidedly more. So that's my pick. Not too difficult. The Cameron Crowe high school script matchup. Fast Times at Ridgemont High directed by Amy Heckerling versus Say Anything. That's a clear Say Anything win for me. Mentioned it earlier. A Fish Called Wanda versus The Meaning of Life. A Fish Called Wanda might be my favorite comedy of all time. And then we get to the number one easiest. And I bring this up, Josh, because this is where I have to let out my own anger and frustration with the bracket committee. And I'll remind you that the bracket committee consists of myself and Sam. Grab your mirror. The John Hughes matchup of The Breakfast Club versus Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Now, I will say for the record that, of course, I believe both films are 80s comedy classics, and there is a universe, in fact, most universes, where both of them belong in The Big Dance. They belong among the 64 best films of the eighties. However, I do put the breakfast club on a pedestal above Ferris Bueller's day off. And my argument was Sam, I'm okay with fitting Ferris in somewhere. Maybe it's part of another play in, but the breakfast club just needs to be in the bracket. And because Ferris Bueller's day off is one of those films they watch at the Van Halgren home, like every other day, right? He pushed back and he said, you know what? It's not going to win, but let's get it in there. Let's put it against the Breakfast Club. For me, the easiest choice I made out of all 30 play-ins. And guess what's happening? Regret? Ferris Bueller's day off right now is winning. Well, that doesn't surprise me. But the Breakfast Club, I just want to be clear, Josh, the Breakfast Club then might not make the tournament. And that's not acceptable to me. (laughs) I'm sorry to take your complaints to the committee. All right. I've got one easiest,
1: Adam. One easiest for me. Dirty dancing versus footloose.
0: (laughs) Oh yeah. And I went the opposite way. I totally went footloose. Let the
1: abomination that is Kevin Bacon's (laughs) dancing burn in the fire of go to the fire.
0: Burn it. (laughs) I love it. That was easy for you, huh? So I have one more that I am going to put out there just to make sure that everyone listening knows that I decidedly believe that the selection committee is fallible. Another one that I can put on Sam, but ultimately then have to blame myself for agreeing to. Of course, Akira Kurosawa's Ron is one of the best films of the 1980s. Of course it is. It belongs in the 64. And Sam said, yeah, but you know what? You love Henry V, Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. I love Kenneth Branagh's Henry V. Other people do too. And you know what, Adam, if you were really making the choice, which one goes in the incinerator? Which movie do you need to watch again? Admit it. You love Henry V so much that might be your pick. And I said, okay, you know what? It's a convenient play and matchup. Shakespeare, the Kings going against each other, the remake, the adaptation of King Lear versus Henry V. Thank goodness in this case, wisdom is prevailing and Ron is not going to lose. It looks like to Henry V. And I As you know, maybe the biggest fan of Kenneth Branagh's Henry V in the world, but I'm relieved to say that it looks like Ron will advance, saving the selection committee from itself. Yes, that is encouraging. I'm glad to hear that. All these play-ins will hopefully give us a diverse pool of films for Madness proper. That does start next week. It's worth noting... For our Patreon members and our subscribers to the Film Spotting newsletter, you always get first dibs on these matchups. Voting did get underway earlier this week. We already, as you heard, have a sense of how some of the matchups are playing out. You will find out how they finished and which movies advanced to the list of 64 next week on Film Spotting. It will be round one of Film Spotting Madness, best of the 80s. So mark it on your calendars. Voting kicks off. Monday the twenty second. Again, if you're a family member, or if you are a subscriber to the Film Spotting newsletter, you get a first shot of those polls. More information at Patreon.com/slash/FilmSpotting, and you could sign up for the newsletter at FilmSpotting.net/slash/newsletter. The biggest news, Josh, we will also have our bracket contest again this year, bringing that back. More information about that coming next week, but we'll have a bracket challenge. Listeners will get to compete for prizes. They'll get to predict how they think it's going to finish, compete against other Film Spotting listeners and against us, Josh, me, you, and Sam. And uh, we are going to compete against each other along with Mike Merrigan. Godfather of Film Spotting Madness.
1: Godfather of Film Spotting Madness. I'm looking up right now. The Loser annually has to watch an Adam Sandler Netflix movie. I I don't keep up on his.
0: What's coming out? Let's see.
1: Hustle. I see Hustle. Um, Let me open this up here. A washed-up basketball scout discovers a phenomenal streetball player while in China and mm. sees the prospect as his opportunity to get back into the NBA. Um, I this looks
0: suspiciously like a real movie, Adam. Yeah, I, or I, one I, that I'm, one that you would want to watch. The basketball fan, you might tank film spotting madness just so you have to watch it.
1: Well, it kind of happens anyway. <laughs>
0: More information about Film Spotting Madness and all its glorious history at filmspotting.net/madness. That's filmspotting.net/madness. For now, Josh, this bit of madness ends. That's our show.
1: If you want to share your madness agony with us on Facebook or on Twitter, Adam is at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Over at the website, filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back to 2005. And yeah, the website is where you can vote in Film Spotting Madness. To order show t-shirts or other merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop, and you can subscribe to our weekly newsletter at filmspotting.net slash
0: newsletter. Out on digital this weekend. I care a lot. Starring Rosamund Pike with Diane Weist, Peter Dinklage, and Top Five Chris Chris Messina. Uh, um, honorable mention, Chris, sir. Okay, well, I think he was my top five Chris. I I don't think he cracked your top five. Well, he was close. In limited <laughs> release, the Mauritanian These are the number we have six, to get Chris right Adam. <laughs> number six, Chris Chris Messina. The Mauritanian is out. That stars Tahar Rahim, <laughs> Benedict Cumberbatch, and Jodie Foster. Jumbo is out. Now, I had not heard anything about this movie, but we can count on David Ehrlich to have a memorable description. He says it splits the difference between Terms of Endearment and David Cronenberg's crash in a way that's often sweet and surreal, but never sinister. Hmm. I'm intrigued. Naomi Merlin from Portrait of Lady on Fire stars as a young woman who becomes sexually obsessed with a theme park attraction. Okay. <laughs> no Madland. Also out. Does this out. movie really yeah. exist? No, we have to move on. We have okay. to move on. No land is also out in theaters and on Hulu next week on the show. It will be our top five, Anthony Hopkins performances. And I promise I won't do any more terrible impressions. Film Spotting
1: is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson.
0: And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.